This Dharma talk was given on a silent meditation retreat at Gaia House in Devon, UK. You can find us on the web at www.gaiahouse.co.uk. These teachings are offered freely for the benefit of all. If you would like to support Gaia House by making a donation towards the administrative costs of making these talks available, please go to the Gaia House website. To donate to Dharma Seed for hosting these talks online or to donate to an individual teacher, please go to the Dharma Seed website. Your generosity supports the teachers and organizations to continue to make these Dharma offerings freely available. Thank you. And so this uh, evening, uh, I want to look at three things. And in a way, first to say that, um, of course, the title of this talk, of this retreat, is Meditation and Mindfulness for Daily Life. But I think we have to be careful that mindfulness and meditation are not in a way, an end in themselves. They're very much a tool. So it's not like we're not trying to become like 150% mindful, like we're going to kind of, you know, win the Olympics of mindfulness because I'm going to be so mindful all the time. That's not really actually the idea. The same with meditation. Of course, you can do lots of meditation, and you could experience meditative state, of course, but in a way that's not, I would say, the end goal. That's not the idea. The idea is that mindfulness and meditation are tools, something we cultivate because by cultivating them, they're going to help us to develop what I call creative awareness which can manifest as wisdom and compassion and can help us to creatively engage. So in a way, mindfulness and meditation for daily life, so in a way it's kind of like here, we are training our muscles of mindfulness, of meditation, so then we develop the power of creative awareness and then we bring that in our daily life, in work, in relationship, in all aspects of our life. And that's why I want to talk tonight about contact, feeling tone, and perception. Because I think this is what cultivating mindfulness, cultivating meditation, actually is going to help us at the point of contact, when we're experiencing tonality. And it's going to actually help us to see how perception, as we mentioned already, can be misperception. And what happens if we misperceive? What happens if we have more clarity of perception? And so that's what I want to talk about to show that in a way, what we're trying to do with this mindfulness is not to become a radar. So we're so mindful all the time, which I think is, would be fairly tense, actually. But we become more mindful of contact. 
we become more mindful of feeling torn. And then that might enable us to be, instead of grasping, to creatively engage. So what do I mean by contact? By contact, I mean just being this organism which is in contact with the world through the senses. So I hear, I have sensation in the body, I smell, I taste, I see, and I have thought. So at any given moment, I can have, in a way, six different types of contact. So again, the idea is not so that I am kind of mindful of all contact all the time, but a lot of the contact are light and not very triggering. But some contact actually can really trigger us. So in a way, the idea of the mindfulness is, can I be aware, hmm, there was contact. And then to see that with contact, generally you have a tonality of pleasant, unpleasant, neither. And then the tonality is totally connected to the perception. So I will explain this more. But let's just give you a small example of contact. So uh, I'm working with somebody with meditation, and we were talking, and she was reporting to me an experience she had. Because I kind of, you know, we've been working with about contact and tonality and perception. And she said, you know, suddenly she was thinking a lot about her ex-boyfriend she had not talked to for years. And she thought they must be kind of some through the ether. Maybe he was calling out to her and maybe she should connect with him, you know, because why would she be thinking about him? You know, there must be something special, you know, she needed to, it was an intuition, she needed to act upon it. And then she was, you know, should I, should not I? And then she said, wait a minute. Yes, I am thinking a lot about him, he's in my mind, images and that, but suddenly she thought, if it's not from the ether or whatever, <coughs> what about contact? What about contact? And then she remembered that 10 days before, she had seen a list of names, and one of the names was the exact name as the ex-boyfriend. It was not the ex-boyfriend, but it was a very similar name. And just seeing, just that contact of seeing that name, which was very similar or the same, as an ex-boyfriend, then it kind of had this subterranean kind of effect. And then suddenly, she had all these thoughts about him. But when she realized it was just a contact with a list of names, I don't have to do anything. It's not some kind of magical calling out. It's just contact. And I don't have anything to do with it. So in a way, is kind of like uh, often what happens with contact is that it goes very fast. We hear something, we see something, we have a thought, we have a sensation, and generally we run with it. And generally we do a lot of association. And so in a way, especially on a retreat, we're not so fast. So then we can be more aware of contact. And one of the things we can see, there is two things in meditation which can be useful to look at in terms of contact, is thought. Because that's a contact. Often we have the impression, what I am thinking is there, and is there for a good reason. But I mean, you might see that sometimes you just have things popping up from like, you don't know where. And sometimes they pop up from very 
specific contact you had before or something is something which is on your mind. But what is important to see that one moment you did not have the thought. So one moment there is no contact. You're present here with what is going on here and next moment you have a thought. And through that you have a contact. And then what do you do with that thought? Are you in a way, aha, that thought, this is me, this is my story, this is essential, this is important, this is meaningful. Or a thought as a reason. I am in contact with a thought. Do I need to do anything about it? Like with the ex-boyfriend. Do I need to creatively engage with it or do I just need it to let it be? And with that, what you can experience when you're sitting in meditation, that you sit here and you're quite relatively fine, and suddenly you remember something somebody said to you a year ago. So that is interesting, because actually here you have a present contact with a past memory. So you have the contact in the past, and now you bring that contact in the present. And then generally you are a little upset about it, and sometimes uh, you start to plot revenge. You know, and they'll say this, and I'll say that, and I'll get them. And generally they don't say what you plan for them to say, but that's another story. But words, Words, something you hear. And to me, word is fascinating because we talked about not self, non self. And sometimes you hear the word emptiness. And for me, a word, I think, is really the representation of emptiness. Because the word appears. You hear the word. And he goes, I mean, however long, the longest word in the English or other language, I mean, it generally won't last more than 30 seconds at the most. So you say a word, it lasts at the most a few seconds, then it's gone. But then what do we do with the word? We hear a word, like, let's make a little experiment of contact. So I look at you really like mm, friendly, smiling, mm, approving. And I say, you are all awakened. You are all Buddhas. Mm. Martin said I'm awakened. Martin said I'm a Buddha. Wow, you know, let's go and teach. You know, I am a Buddha. I am awakened. Or, I look at you a little dourly and I say, you are all stupid. <gasps> Martin, say I'm stupid? Am I stupid? Is she stupid to say I'm stupid? What is it? It's just a word. And so, I'm not saying you should ignore it. Contact is there. But I think it's a difference between grasping at it, identifying with it, and creatively engaging with it. For me, I look at words a little bit like when I go to buy oranges. When you go to buy oranges, you are a little self-centered. I am. So I go and buy oranges, and I don't buy the worst oranges. I, mean, I could be compassionate for the seller and buy the worst oranges, because nobody else is going to buy them, but not. I am little. And so I try to find the best oranges for Stephen. Because it's for him, me. I don't drink orange juice. So I look at the, you know, I get the best oranges. And I think word is the same. Somebody 
say a word to you, but you have a choice. Often we hear a word and we, oh, this is me. This defines me. But no, it's like with the oranges. Is it a good oranges? Is it like not going to be a good oranges? I don't need to buy it. You know? I don't need to grasp at it. I don't need to identify with it. So in a way, when we practice a meditation, we're trying to move a little bit from the process of grasping upon contact, because it goes very fast, to, hmm, does this word say something about me? Does this word say something about them? Is there some misunderstanding? Can I work with this or not? So in a way, there you have much more like a multi-choice. I think what the mindfulness or meditation help us in terms of contact is not this immediate reaction, but this, hmm, how can I creatively engage with this? And so just to give a little example of what I mean in terms of the grasping, some of you have already seen my little party trick, but there is a lot of new ones, so they will have it too. So the process of grasping. Let's say this is gold or diamond or the greatest truth in the universe, and it's mine. This is very important to see. As we've mentioned already, grasping comes with I, me, mine. So it's precious, it belongs to me, so I hold on to it. And if I hold on to it for any length of time, two things are going to happen. The first one, I am going to get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> and so in a way, this is a sign of grasping, tension. Tension is often a sign of grasping. Then, something much more complicated is that if I do this, I cannot use my hand for anything else. I am stuck to what I'm grasping at. That's what is kind of the most problematic because any grasping is going to reduce possibility, is going to bring limitation. So then what's the solution? I mean, you could cut the hand, but it's a little drastic, so we won't go there. You could get rid of the object. I mean, does the object say, come, 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 grasp at me? You know, I mean, like, when you kind of look at this kind of beautiful, in France, patisserie, and you, mm, you feel the cake, you think, you really want me, you really want <laughs> me, don't you? But not, not. So in a way, the thing is not to get rid of the object, I don't think that's a solution, but the solution in a way is to learn to open our hands. So the object can still be there, still appreciated, but not grasp at. So in a way, when we grasp, we generally identify, I, me, mine, then we limit ourselves. And the last one is that we amplify. That's what is the most problematic about grasping, is that we reduce the scope and we amplify what we're grasping at. And so in a way, what we're trying to do with the mindfulness and the meditation is actually kind of basically opening our hands, basically in a way relaxing that grasping. But we also have to see that we're not going for 0% grasping. We often, I think people think, you know, like, we cannot grasp at anything. I must be totally non-attached. Somebody once was worried about being attached to coffee. And I said, well, as long as you don't drip feed it, I think it's okay. You know, a little coffee is fine. So personally, I think what we're trying to do is bring down the grasping from 95% to 50%. Because 
because we have to survive. We are an organism, we have to survive, so at one level we have to take care of ourselves. But at the same time, if we diminish the grasping, we can feel more the connection first, and secondly, we can see more the other for themselves. But I'll talk more about that on Tuesday evening. So back to contact. So what we're trying to do, kind of when we're in silence, when we're on a retreat, is just to not notice all the contact, but co notice some of the contact. When we see something, when we hear something, I mean, today was so interesting with the wind, because that contact could be very interesting in terms of tonality. So tonality, the term is Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. And this term is a second foundation of mindfulness. So you have the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of mental state, and then mindfulness of many different things. And the Buddha saw that one was very important because the thing with this tonality that we experience upon contact is a given. So contact is a given. We're not trying to not be in contact. This is just being human. It's a function. Being in contact is a creative function. But we can be in contact and grasp, or we can be in contact and creatively engage. And at the same time as there is contact, exactly at the same time you have tonality. And so tonality, what we're talking about is that tonality of something being pleasant, and you could say a range from 0 to 10 to unpleasant, a range from minus 1 to minus 10, and neutral, neither. Just to give you an example, color. Uh, we have kind of a few red blankets, bright red blankets. So we look at the red, and upon that contact, there is a tonality. Then we might look at the cream color, and you're going to have a different tonality. And we might look at blue, at green, at gray, and each of the color, we will have a different tonality. And has red does anything to you? Has green, has gray done anything to you? As far as I know, not. But it's like you'll say, hmm, red, I like red. It's a great color. But often what we do is that we think, we imbue the thing with the pleasantness. Like for example, mango. I love mango. So mango is good. I mean the pleasantness is in the mango. So then I met someone who did not like mango. I was kind of so, what? You don't like mango? What's the problem with you? I did not say that, but <laughs> I thought it. And then I said, but you have not had a good one. She was dubious. And I said, this is a good one. She was dubious. But I was older, she was younger, so she had to try it. And she said, it's still, ugh. So to me, it really showed me so clearly that the pleasantness or the unpleasantness is not in the mango. It's in my perception of the mango. That's why perception. But the perception is constructed. The tonality is totally constructed. But we often imbue things with the tonality. Like ice cream. In the summer, give me ice cream to cool me off. And then in the winter, I see English people eat ice cream. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, why, what's wrong with them? What, or what's wrong with me that I cannot eat ice cream in the winter? It just, I'm too cold. So in a way, you have the same stuff, 
But in summer, it's pleasant. And in the winter, it's unpleasant. So what is very interesting with this tonality is how it's conditioned and constructed and how we often kind of think, you know, it's stuck in the person or it's stuck in the object. So the mindfulness of the tonality is kind of to see, hmm, be careful. The tonality will very much depend on the perception. I mean, you kind of, uh, you are in a room and you are in a great space and you hear children playing outside. Oh, lovely children, wonderful. You know, and you might be working on a book or doing something really delicate and you want to be so quiet and they're kind of making such a racket and these children and again, same. But you'll have a different perception. So you have the same contact different perception and different tonality. And why was the Buddha so interested in tonality? Is because he said we have an automatic reaction to tonality. If it's pleasant, we want more of it. We want to repeat it. If it's unpleasant, we don't want it. Not even a second. And if it's neither, then it becomes complicated. So let's look first at pleasant. Pleasant, that's something you can really explore with the food here. You know, you see the color, you have the smell, and then you have the taste. And then sometimes you have surprise. You know, like you think this is going to be so good and you put lots on your plate, and then you taste it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not like what I thought. Or you think this is not so good, you put just a little and then you're eating, ah, oh, so good, you regret it already, you know. Will there be any left? Interesting. What do we do? The other thing we do is like, for example, I don't know if you have that experience, but you, can, you know you have a little piece of, I don't know, chocolate cake or whatever, strawberry or whatever. And then you eat it. You just have one mouthful. And, oh, oh, I want more. I mean, you've not finished your piece. And you're already worrying about, will I be able to get more? So that's interesting. Kind of this, I want to repeat it. So it doesn't mean that we should not have pleasant feeling tone. The Buddha thought it was a great idea to have pleasant feeling tone. He thought it was really healing, really healthy, really good to appreciate pleasant feeling tone. That's why he has this practice of rejoicing, of appreciation. But it's what do we do with it? You know, like when we want to repeat it and you keep eating the chocolate cake and then you become ill, for example, or whatever it might be, to see what do we do? Can we in a way, appreciate the pleasant when it's here, but just leaving it there. But noticing how we want to repeat it. This is kind of, you know, like you have a great weekend with your friend, they leave the door and you say, let's do this again. And then you try to do it again and most of the time (laughs) you don't have exactly the same experience. I mean, you can have a different pleasant experience, but a lot of the time we cannot reproduce exactly the same one. And in terms of the meditation, we have to be careful with what I call the newness of the experience. Like if we have been meditating for a little bit, at the beginning, we often have a sharp contrast to before I did not meditate, Then I meditated, and if it's really useful for you, then, ah, I feel calmer, I feel clearer, or whatever it might be. You really, ah, this meditation, it really works. I'm having a different type of experience. I'm experiencing myself differently. And then you practice more and more and more. And then you say, but why am I not having this wow experience? Because you have changed. 
and the contrast is much less than before. So we have to be careful of this beginning experience which seems in a way so transformative and special and then we think, why are not they happening anymore? Because we are partly transformed so that there is much less contrast. Then there is an unpleasant. One more thing about the pleasant which can be interesting is the fact that generally we don't notice pleasant unless it's plus five. So if you are plus five, you think, yes, great, ah, wonderful. Between zero and plus five, it's normal. It's okay. And that's what, in a way, I would say the advantage of the mindfulness of the feeling tone is that it's going to extend the range. That actually we're going to realize, oh, there are lots of pleasant experience. Chris has already mentioned that. And that we don't just need to have the plus five, because plus five are a little more tricky to get. But there is a lot of plus one, plus two, plus three. So in a way, the mindfulness of the feeling tone is going to extend the range, but also extend the range of the unpleasant. Because in a way, because of the grasping, we can grasp, I want this. But you do the same when you grasp in reverse. I don't want this. You're going to amplify it in the same way. And so, if you have a pain minus one, it's not the same as minus five or minus ten. But we could make it very quickly, minus five or minus ten. So in a way, here again, we're going to become more aware of the range. Oh yeah, this is minus one. How can I deal with this? This is minus five. How can I creatively engage with that? This is minus 10. How can I help myself? And then it's kind of, again, going to be more multi-perspectival. And then, there is neither. And actually neither, which we could call neutral, is very connected to perception. Because as uh, one of the citations says, if you understand neutral, it can become pleasant. If you don't understand neutral, it can become unpleasant. And here you have a big debate in terms of the Buddhist tradition, in terms of the one who are interested in Vedana, in feeling told, not everybody is interested in it, and in terms of those who are interested in neutral. Some people think it does not exist, some people think it more or less exists, etc., etc. I mean, the Buddha talked about in the text about the neither. And he says the interesting thing about neither, actually, and we'll see if we have the time to talk about it. But personally, I think in terms of our time, like in terms of like when we need to be plus five to think, yes, I'm having a pleasant experience, then if that's what we expect, then neutral, whew, it's unpleasant. But if you have a greater range, then neutral is restful. Or neutral can become, it's boring, I am boring, or nothing is happening, I am a non-happening person, or whatever it is. It's very interesting, n this neither, when nothing is going on, because we're not, I think, so used to it anymore. I mean, nowadays, I mean, you can always go to Netflix, you can go to Instagram, to Facebook, to Twitter. I mean, you really don't need, <laughs> you don't need to spend much time in neutral nowadays. There is generally, you know, kind of a cat video to, hmm. 
or some other video to kind of get you angry or whatever. So actually, I would say, I mean, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they totally, I mean, they're not Buddhist, they don't know anything about Vedana, but they totally get it. I mean, the whole thing is based on Vedana. Up, down. I mean, it's just Vedana and perception and contact. I mean, there you have it writ large. And so in a way you could say, I would say the meditation, the mindfulness is a rediscovery of neither. Because a lot of the time, not much happened. And often we sit in meditation waiting for sp something special to happen and sometimes it does, but most of the time not. You know? And personally, I think that often we meditate and we think, hmm, was it a good meditation or was it a bad meditation? So generally a good one, no pain, no thought and feeling good. A bad one, pain, lots of thought, and things of that nature. But personally, I would say all your meditation, I mean, unless you are in excruciating pain, which I hope you're not, are good meditation. Because you sit there. Because you do the job. The job is actually just to cultivate anchoring, to cultivate being aware of change. That's the job. And sometimes it might have an immediate effect, sometimes it might have no immediate effect. But notice, most of the time, at the end of the meditation, that it be a good one or a bad one, notice there is like a effect, what I call the effect. Like, something a little bit released something as a little bit relaxed, tiny bit. And to me, that's the effect of meditation we're going to take into daily life. Because an inside, uh, a quiet and clear state, I mean, it's, of course, it's enjoyable to experience this. But what we're really going to take with us <coughs> is this degrasping, is a degrasping effect. And the degrasping effect, it doesn't matter if it was a great or not great meditation. It's still happening because to some degree you anchored, to some degree you were aware of change. So in a way, partly meditation helps us to be with the neither. And personally, I see neutral in a positive light. Personally, I see it as kind of like uh, a middle ground. Like we go up, but we cannot stay up all the time. We go down, but we cannot stay down all the time either. And so in a way, it's kind of like a way to balance the organism. That we go up, we go down, and then we come back in the middle. So personally, when nothing is happening, I think, great. It's restful. And you could say, at least nothing bad is happening. It's already something. I met a, a lady who was kind of, you know, she moved from Poland to um, London, and she thought London should be really exciting, and she did not find London exciting, and she was mm, bored and neutral, and thinking, mm, what am I doing in London? And then she got a really bad toothache. And then she thought, hmm, neutral is better than having a toothache. So she could see the difference between just being in neutral and having kind of unpleasant tonality. So in a way, with this neutral, I think that's often what we experience when we see it, especially if we are aware of the breath this is going to be very neutral. And then we can be aware of neutral with contact, just contact, the hand on the leg, the clothes on the body, 
Again, very neutral. And actually we can rest our attention there. Just choose to, oh, I'll rest on something neutral. Or we can go to something which I will have a more something, a little unpleasant or a little pleasant. And here back to perception with the wind. I mean, all day long, we've heard the wind. So contact, sound of the wind, what did we do with it? Was it pleasant, neutral, unpleasant? And the tonality totally depended on the perception. I mean, you could just be in the listening, as uh, Catherine was saying, you know, you are with the sensation, you can do the same with the sound. You can just hear the sound for itself. And if you hear the sound for itself, I presume up to a point it will be relatively neutral, possibly. But then, if you think, wind, exciting, then it becomes pleasant. Or wind, really there, it keeps me awake. It's pleasant. Wind, storm. Are we going to be able to get out? Is this going to last the whole time or not? I want to go out. And so, in a way, I wonder today if you could see the difference in how you, in a way, saw the wind. Like when we were here, we just heard it. So in a way, I would say at that level, it could be more elemental and in a way do less with it. But I found it interesting, like when I was in the dining room with the coordinator and then I could see the wind and the water coming and then you have the sight. And, oh, and it's very hard not to, f to feel something. Okay, it's just water, it's just wind, but it's kind of, this is strong stuff. And then you are in your bedroom and then the psh, you have the draft coming in and, oh, this is strong stuff. So in a way, according to one of the elements, like if it was just listening here, very likely most of the time it was fine. If we were outside in the element, very different story. If we are thinking of going outside in the elements, another story. So in a way, you have the same stuff. And then according to our perception, we're going to have different tonality. And then the question is, how do I creatively engage? So you know, what we're trying to do here is not that you should not have the perception, it's not that you should not have the tonality, but so that you can become more aware, oh yeah, there is contact, oh yeah, there is tonality, mm, yeah, there is perception. And how can I creatively engage with that? So I think I will uh, stop here because tomorrow in the uh, instruction I'll talk more in with more precision uh, in terms of how to do it in terms of the meditation and then I'll do a guided meditation with it in the afternoon. But are there any, we have a little time left before the walking period. Are there any questions or comments? So if there is uh, no question and comment, I can just go a little more on in terms of the tonality, in terms of that, uh, you c I mean, later on I can give you the information, in terms of the text. You have a text in the ancient uh, text, and there 
they took about 108 types of tonality. And so that's why, in a way, uh, to me, it's a very complex and interesting subject because we can look at it through different aspects. And in that text, the Buddha said that first, you can see tonality either as mental or either as physical sensation. That's why the term sometimes can be translated as sensation. And for example, the Goinka and the Vipassana retreat, often they will translate it as sensation, and then will really focus on that aspect of Vedana. But there is also a mental aspect, and there is also these three types, pleasant, unpleasant, neither. Then there is also through the sixth contact, but one, there is something else I'll talk more about tomorrow because it's a bit technical. But one other that he introduced is the idea that you have tonality which comes from the past, tonality which comes from the present, and tonality which comes from the future. And I think that's what often happens, that sometimes you experience a tonality either of a sensation, either of an emotion, either of a thought. And actually right now, you might be okay, but then suddenly there is this tonality and actually it comes from a memory from the past or it comes from an associative reaction if we triggered like from, if one has a trauma or PTSD, it's like you experience something actually physical, but it comes from the past. But we can also, in a way, experience something from the future. And I often think that's what happens uh, with anxiety, with fear. Because often we will be, I mean, I mean, if you're afraid for good reason, that's totally fine <laughs> and in the present. And it's a survival mechanism, which is very useful. But often, we are afraid in the future. What if this happened and what if that happened? And long ago, when I was a, a nun in Korea, and we decided at some point, this was early days, that we were going to do a non-sleep day, week. So that for a week, we would not sleep at all, and we would just meditate all the time. They, they, they like to do this kind of thing. And we wanted to, yes, we will do it, you know. We will awake. Uh, and my, I had no problem sitting all day and all night. No problem with that. My problem was that I was extremely fearful of the dark. Then I would have to go to the toilet outside, and I was going to have a heart attack or something. So I go to the master and said, we're going to do this, and I'm going to be so afraid. What should I do? What should I do? And he said to me, go back to your anchor. Basically, what I did there was questioning, go back to the question, go back to the question. And I thought the question would be like a kind of a magic to protect me from the bad guy out there. So I did, we started to do the non-sleep week, and you know, I would go out at 2 o'clock to go to the bathroom. What is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? You know, kind of, you know, so no bad guy would attack me. And I did this one day, another night, until I was kind of outside, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I could feel physically, you know, like I had this fear. And there is this guy with a knife, he's going to get me. And at the same time, the power of the anchor, of coming back to what is this, what is this, which brings you back to right what's going on now. And coming back to what's going on now, I thought, but it's two o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere. Who would know I am there to come and get me anyway? And the whole thing went. And so in a way, there was this kind of anxiety in advance. 
you know, the before I went, when I went, there was this kind of like this really unpleasant physical thing. And in a way, the anchor was like coming back to the anchor, coming back to what is going on now. And I think this is something which can be so helpful in a way in terms of that, in terms of the past, in terms of the future, those tonality which actually comes from the past, come from the future, and we can get so lost in them, so overwhelmed by them. And in a way, coming back to the anchor, that it be the breath, that it be the body, that it be the sound, that it be the question, that it be the loving kindness, bring us to what's going on here. And then again, the thing becomes so much more multi-perspectival. Because personally, I feel I see the meditation as dissolving the grasping. So then our creative potential can really come out. So that's what I wanted to add. Yes? Physical pain gives you a tonality. Uh, so one thing I might not have uh, explained is that um, you have contact. So physical pain, sensation is one of the contact because it's just one of the consciousness. You, know, you have the body, you have the hearing, you have the seeing. But the body is through which we also have contact, contact of sensation. And so we can have uh, a sensation which is fairly neutral, like the breath. So in a way you have contact with the body, contact with the breath, contact with the clothes on the body, and that's fairly neutral. Or you finally manage to get to go into the shower, and then you have warm water, and it's ah. So you have a sensation, contact with the hot water, ah, it's pleasant. Or you're sitting. And then your knee hurt. And of course, this is a contact. And this is a tonality. And generally, the tonality, of course, in, in terms of pain, will be unpleasant. And then, as we talk, the, the thing with pain is that sometimes you could say you have a definite, precise pain. And of course, it's unpleasant. And then again, according to what we do with the perception of it, it might be more unpleasant or less unpleasant. And that also depends, I would say, on our energy, on our clarity, on how we are sensitive that day. And yes, you have sensation of contact through the body, and then it can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And then from the tonality, it can quickly, in a way, go into a feeling which can then turn into an emotion, which then can turn into a disturbing emotion. And that's why, in a way, often we become aware of tonality generally too late. When from this contact with that tonality, I am in this disturbing emotion. And what is also interesting, and I'll talk more about it, is a changing nature of contact and tonality. I'll just give a small example, and then I'll finish. I had a very good experience many years ago, very good experience with my mother, my sister. We come back, and really pleasant. Oh, that was a great shopping, great time. And then because I was a little excited by the pleasantness, when we go above five, we can get a little excited. And then I thought, well, I'm going to rearrange everything in the cupboard. Then my mother was like, oh. So then I thought, this is a bad idea. So I stopped doing that. And then I went upstairs. My mother lived downstairs, I live upstairs. So I go upstairs. And two hours later, Stephen comes from his office and says something to me in the kitchen. And I say something nasty to him. But he has not done anything whatsoever. And I think, 
Why am I saying something in an unpleasant tone here? And then I retrace. And I realize that because the tonality stopped, the pleasant one stopped, I still had the echo of the pleasantness, but because it stopped, it became unpleasant. And so I had this kind of underneath unpleasantness which spread, and then I was spreading it to other people. This is something we have to be very careful with unpleasant tonality. Is that sometimes it seems like not much, but then it kind of seems to get associated with other things, and then poof, we kind of redistribute it somewhere else. So it's kind of, that's why I think it's so important you know, to be as aware of the pleasant as the unpleasant. But I'll talk more in terms of contact and sensation tomorrow. So, thank you. And then we maybe the last five minutes we could just sit quietly.
So if you want to continue to sit, please feel free to do so. Otherwise, there is some walking meditation and then we'll meet back here at nine o'clock for the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.